Hey everyone, this is your friend Bully, and you're listening to Bully Esquire. In this podcast, we chat with the movers and shakers from the worlds of finance, tech, crypto, politics, law, and media, and everything in between. Thanks for joining. Let's dive in. This podcast is powered by Blockworks, the fastest growing crypto media company. Blockworks has 20 crypto and finance podcasts, and I'm excited to be part of the network. Visit blockworks.co for access to the highest quality information in the space. I promise you won't be disappointed. Today's episode is brought to you by Node40, Crypto.com, and Gemini. You'll hear more about them later in the episode. Hey, everyone. Today, I have Brad Newman. Brad, a friend of mine for a long time on Twitter, he is the Senior Practice Innovation Manager at Cooley Law Firm, um, and he's very deep into league tech, legal technology. Um, we try to shorten everything in tech, but <laughs> maybe that one isn't as nice as fintech. Brad, how are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, yeah, no problem. And, um, you know, I'm sure we'll have a lot of fun stuff to talk about, about crypto and sort of the, the technology innovations. But right before this, we were talking about trading cards. So I just want to take like <laughs> right, right away, do like an aside yeah. and talk about trading cards. You're, you said you're, you've been kind of deep down the rabbit hole on trading cards recently. Yeah. You know, I, I can't recall exactly um, what triggered me, um, but it, you know, obviously I collected like everyone else did apparently in the late eighties, mm -hmm. <laughs> right. um, because if you look at like late eighties baseball, especially, which is what I collected at the time being, you know, nine years old, um, mm -hmm everyone else was too. Like the market is just flooded with eight, late eighties cards. So yeah, I just recently picked it back up as a, what I like to refer to as a method of um, asset diversification um, sure. is my <laughs> rationale. Um, and, you know, it's kind of fun, you know, after all this digital stuff, you know, all, uh, crypto and whatnot, um, mm -hmm. and even NFTs, it's nice to have, hold something, you know, in your hands. And it looks like there's a, you know, PSA being a, uh, you know, seemingly legitimate third-party authenticator. Um, mm. You know, it's nice to sort of have certainty in what you have, and also be able to dip into, you know, I guess the higher risk aspects of buying, you know, ungraded or raw cards and submitting them for grading. And although, you know, they're backed up, right? Like their 20-day service is like six months now or something. My God. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's 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 crazy. So. Can you, are there yeah. any like local places to do that? Or do you have to like send them away? No, you got to send them away. Okay. Yeah. And like there are other services too, but I mean, if you look on eBay, the, the, the disparity in price between PSA and other services is, I mean, 50% sometimes, maybe mm -hmm. even more. Like it's, it's crazy. Um, so it's, yeah. It's so funny that you mentioned it too, because like I've just sort of, randomly gotten really interested in my old basketball card. So I, I was like a basketball card collector when I was a kid, late eighties, early nineties, sort of same thing, Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, um, Magic Johnson, all those fun ones. And, you know, I'm, I'm actually having my mom ship all my old cards to me, Do so it. go through them. And yeah, maybe it's just like the NFT thing has got me thinking about it with top shots and all this. Have you, have you dabbled in any of that? Yeah, I, I definitely dabbled in top shot. Um, I, um, you, know, you know, I was lucky enough to get a couple of packs and, you know, opening them was pretty fun. Uh, the market is obviously insane. Um, I, I took, you know, some profit and then 
quickly reinvested it at the top, of course. Um, <laughs> so, you know, now I'm down, but up. Um, right. But uh, yeah, I mean, NFTs, um, I, I was skeptical at first. I mean, but I, I, I get it. You know, mm -hmm. it, it's something that everyone can, you know, that a lot of people, a lot more people can participate in much more easily, especially these days, uh, than, you know, going to card shows and, um, you know, worrying, I suppose, you know, in online transactions, as I kind of mentioned about mm -hmm. you know, the quality of card that you end up getting versus, you know, the like potato picture that you sometimes see. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can see buying like ungraded cards off of eBay being risky. Yep. I can attest to that. <laughs> firsthand, firsthand knowledge of that one. Sure. Like they look perfect in the picture and then you get them and it looks like someone ate lunch with it. Well, you know what though? It's not even that, like you can tell, you can tell that a card is like crisp, but, but, mm -hmm. you know, for PSA grading or just grading generally, the, 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 um, you know, the devil's in the details uh, for grading. Like if, if a corner is like slightly faded or, or, um, uh, you know, it just has like this sheen. Anyway, it, it's crazy. Mm -hmm. Obviously to get like a, PSA 10 or like, you know, like a mint gem mint, I think, as they call it, grading, it really has to be absolutely perfect. And then the difference between a 10 and an eight, it, honest, like it's very hard to detect hmm. the difference unless you're using like a magnifying glass. I don't know how these guys actually, you know, examine the cards, but I imagine it's kind of, you know, like the way that people look at diamonds. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and so it's these imperceptible things that are really difficult to, to see that can change the value of a card from, you know, by an order of magnitude easily. The difference sure. between like a 10 and an eight, that's very difficult to ascertain online. But of course, you know, I'm just a, I'm a total noob in this, or I guess like, you know, a born again. And, mm -hmm. um, and so there are much more experienced people who I'm sure are much better at, at buying, you know, raw cards online. Although I think the general consensus is, you know, vintage cards especially are are very, very, very tricky. Modern yeah. cards, of course, you know, it's um, it's more likely that you know what you see is 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 what you get because um, you know they throw them right into sleeves, and then it's just mm -hmm. a question of like centering. Right. It's a whole other thing. I don't even understand. I don't understand how in this day and age, like a card can be different from any other card, which I guess is that's an interesting thing about NFTs. I'm going mm -hmm. on a rant here. Watch out. No, that's this is perfect. Yeah, th so that that's an interesting thing with NFTs, right? Is like how do you ascertain an intrinsic value of a card that, you know, in and of itself, is no different, right? So it's in the metadata of the card. Mm -hmm. So it's in like the serial number. So like a low serial number, the lower the serial number, the better. Yeah, the like which print is obviously, number. yeah, which is like completely arbitrary. Like obviously, when you're dealing with fine art and you're dealing with lithographs. Prints. The theory is that the lower the print number, the you know potentially better quality it is, mm -hmm. right? Than after you know a hundred um, copies have been made, sure. um, even off of the same plate, right? Um, again, more of a manual process. So now that's you know that's entered the digital realm. So it's lower serial numbers, and then there's like if the serial number is the same as the player's jersey number, you know that's highly coveted. Um, I'm sure there's like, I'm sure I haven't looked, but I imagine that like any serial number, any like 420 serial number, I would totally assume 
is worth more than any other random number given right. like or like you know, 69 <laughs> I, you I, you said that i'm yeah. i'm not i was gonna say that but um but yeah so like you know so that's that's arbitrary and of course like whether it's a limited edition or not and like mm -hmm. how rare it is and it's crazy because they've been releasing packs for like you know five thousand packs at a time they're doing stress testing right now um and you know there are a hundred thousand uh people waiting in line yeah for this stuff um so we'll see where it goes. I'm really interested to see. It's obviously very early days. Um, I got to give Dapper Labs like huge credit, um, and you know the investors in in like the Flow token. Um, I think there's a lot more to be seen in how that you know how that chain um, plays out. Um, I'm very curious to see where it goes. Like you can't buy Flow in the U.S. I don't think. Um, in fact, I'm certain that you can't. It's not on any exchanges in the U.S., um, but definitely one, I think, to look for uh, or look out for um, internationally. Um, what, do you, uh, like, yeah. what do you make of the punks? Um, yeah, I mean, that's crazy, too. I haven't looked very closely at the punks. Um, I'm sure to my own financial peril, <laughs> um, although who knows at this point. It does seem to be obviously like a very... Um, um expensive asset at this point um yeah the lowest one's like 20 ethereum which is what like 40 yeah grand i know yeah it's um i mean look i'm all for it um i think that you know verifiable trustless um um artifacts or assets uh, i think it's great right mm -hmm. think about think about like the counterfeit market for fine art and how like just how pervasive it is um, I mean, I'm sure, uh, I don't know if you've read any articles about it, but there's lots of literature out there about the counterfeit, you know, fine art market and for baseball, you know, for sports cards too. Um, you know, there, I think that some of the reasons that PSA is so much, uh, uh, you know, it's a much more popular grading service than the others is that the others have, um, I guess, less secure technology that they've embedded in their, um, like grading not the process, but the end result, right? Like the case that they give it, you know, the, the case that PSA gives to you mm -hmm. is, you know, allegedly um, tamper-proof, right? Like it's very easy to see if a case has been cracked, right? Because mm -hmm. people will crack the case, take out the mint card, put in another card, and then, um, you know, sell that, right? Um, and they also have various like hologram technologies, et cetera. Um, but the other services, my understanding is that there have been some, you know, some scandals in the past. Of course, blockchain, presumably, I suppose absent like a 51% attack or something, um, is, um, is trustless. Mm -hmm. And so you know, um, you know what you're getting. And that I think is a super important, um, critical part of, um, of, of any kind of collecting uh whether as a hobby or as an investment so mm -hmm. um cyberpunks is really cool um you know obviously uh, um they have an um an advantage um we're obviously seeing more nfts come out and i'm, I'm really excited uh, about the the potential for yeah for all nfts yeah yeah, no, it's a really cool market. And well, I'll stop grilling you on this. <laughs> I should get into what you do, uh, what you do in oh. your, your day job. So tell, tell me about your background. I'm curious how you like got into crypto or legal tech and um, yeah, how you ended up in this crazy space with us. 
Yeah, so uh, I'm a Canadian trained lawyer. I worked in uh, the Toronto, uh, like a, a Toronto big law firm, as that's you know defined in Canada, which is obviously much smaller than um, you know most <laughs> M Law 100 or 200 law firms um, in in America. But um, I, so I gained a few years' experience in Toronto, and then decided to um, you know come down to Silicon Valley and do uh, a Master of Laws at Stanford. Uh, while at Stanford, it's a one-year program. Um, I mean, you know, the classroom, um, certainly for someone in my position, those, you know, um, similarly situated um, in that program, it was, it was more, much more about the ecosystem than, you know, learning substantive legal principles. Um, so, um, you know, went out and networked and went to, um, you know, as many, um, you know, talks and conferences and meetups as, as possible, um, ended up uh, getting um, a co-founding a startup actually, which at that point was called Law Gives, which is now uh, legal.io. So shout out to legal.io, um, which is um, um, a company run by at um, digital lawyer on Twitter um, that, that, you know, matches um, uh, basically does recruitment uh, for in in-house jobs, um, but in any event, um, I transitioned uh, because at the time it was like three lawyers, right, and no tech, no tech lead, trying to get a startup off the ground, which is, <laughs> you know, it, which is silly. Um, sure. And so uh, there was an opportunity to to join Stardex, um, which is a Stanford affiliated. Um, uh, startup accelerator program and yeah I mean talk about getting <laughs> exposure um, um, I ended up being their director of legal affairs and just wearing a lot of different hats um, you know anything from helping them set up their um, uh, you know the co um, Stanford Stardex uh, investment fund uh, to stacking chairs after events um, and you know, giving uh, the 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 participants um, not legal advice, of course, but you know, guidance on on legal issues um, and setting them up with uh, with lawyers uh, at Silicon at big Silicon Valley firms. And so I developed relationships with the with a lot of partners at these Silicon Valley firms, and uh, which you know, which paid off certainly um, later on after Stardex. So I, I met um, um, uh, Menu Kumar from Canine Ventures uh, while I was at Stardex. And um, he um, he hooked me up with Henry Ward, the CEO of, uh, at the time, eShares, now Carta. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I mean, at the time, I think it was three people. I think it was like Henry, um, their lead designer, Josh, uh, was part-time and um, one, I think just one offshore developer, okay? Hmm. Um, there may have been a, a couple of others, but it was super small, super, super early. And he, you know, told me about the idea of taking uh, stock certificates online, right? Making them electronic. And um, I thought, yeah, I mean, <laughs> Assuming that from a regulatory perspective, it, that is permissible, 
um, that makes total sense to me. And I'm shocked that no one else is really pushing it. Um, at the time, there was something called, um, basically, you could represent shares in a ledger and not have to issue share certificates, but that's different from having electronic share certificates. I won't go into the whole, you know, spiel on that, but suffice it to say, um, it was, you know, I was there for eight months, um, I mean, eight, eight, yeah, eight or nine months. And an ex I mean, I, I was, um, um, I wasn't in a, there in a legal capacity. I was um, an operations manager or the operations manager. Um, Henry wasn't too keen on job titles, um, mm -hmm. which I think is fine. Um, but yeah, again, I was doing a lot of, frankly, tech support with um, with the early adopters and um, on sales calls and you know ordering lunch for us. I mean, again, like a sort of a jack of all trades operations guy um, after several months um i had then by then passed the california bar became a licensed attorney and i just it's not that i didn't believe in the company i just didn't know if like that's why i moved to california mm -hmm. right um i didn't move to california um you know to do tech support for early adopters of a, of a product even though i believe in the product and uh so i ended up uh, leaving to start my own uh, law firm in partnership with my immigration attorney, which lasted for a hot minute, like <laughs> literally, I think four or six weeks. And then I had a meeting, just a coffee catch up with um, with one of the Cooley partners, Matt Bardis, um, who's fantastic, and uh, who's now in Singapore, mm. uh, leading um, our, our new office there. And uh, he, I mean, basically they made me an offer I couldn't refuse. It was all about merging, um, like how to make the, in particular at the time, the emerging companies practice or the startup practice more efficient and accessible, um, which included, you know, helping launch Cooley Go, uh, which is our microsite for, you know, entre for entrepreneurs. Uh, so that hadn't launched yet. Um, it was about 75, 50 to 75% of the way through. So I, I took that through to launch, including learning how to code up contracts using uh, one of the document automation tools called Contract Express, uh, which is at the time um, was an independent company. Now it's owned like many others. It's owned by Thomson Reuters now. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I, I mean, it's, I then transitioned to um, a, um, I guess, a department-wide role. So a business department firm-wide uh, role rather than uh, sort of being siloed in the uh, startup practice. And so, you know, I've, I, I've expanded my portfolio, if you will, and I have several, you know, people on my team now. Uh, and so we, um, you know, we're responsible for uh, keeping an eye on the latest legal tech. And so that is technology that is specific for, um, for legal practice, right? So it's not like, it's not technology of general applicability that may also apply to the practice of law, like Microsoft Word, right? Microsoft Word is not legal tech, um, but it's about um, very specific tools. Um, so, I mean, even even something like DocuSign is sort of on the edge of legal tech, I would mm -hmm. say. Um, um, but something as specific as like Lightera Transact, 
which is um, an online uh, deal management um, tool or platform. Uh, so we um, we identify these either proactively or in, or in response to the needs that we're seeing in the practice. Um, and uh, sometimes we build our own tools. Um, sometimes we have to combine, you know, many tools that we have at our disposal into, you know, one workflow. And we pilot, uh, like we design, we pilot, um, and then we deploy and support uh, post-deployment. Sure. So, yeah, um, I, I don't know if any of that makes makes any sense or yeah, I, mean, man. I don't know if your eyes just glossed over. <laughs> I can't see you. So, no, no, I have a lot of questions. Um, I, I'm, I'm very interested in legal technology as a as a practicing attorney and somebody who's worked both in house and at law firms. It's interesting to sort of think about, um, I guess, an innovation specialist at a law firm, because it almost mm -hmm. seems like an oxymoron in some ways, yeah. because yeah. at least, you know, a lot of attorneys have sort of a reputation for being resistant to new technology and kind of, you know, doing things their own way and the same way they've done them for 40 years. So, yeah. you know, I, I'd be curious, obviously Cooley is a very sort of innovative law firm and you guys are doing a lot of sort of interesting technology work. So maybe it's different there, but do you, I'd just be curious to hear your thoughts generally on kind of like the innovation dilemma with regards to attorneys. Yeah, um, I, I think attorneys do get a bad rep for, um, I think I think that the reputation for um, being anti-innovation is misplaced. I mean, you, you, you touched on it, right? It's the same thing, like lawyers aren't stuck in the same process they've been doing for 40 years. They have in fact been innovating on that process for 40 years and it's a they're they are well-tuned machines right so you know a lawyer that's been practicing you know for 15 years they have their process it's muscle memory at that point right so um so there's with legal technology um there's a learning curve and sometimes that learning curve is really steep and also frankly a lot of legal tech is just not very good um and it's a really hard job being a legal tech vendor because mm -hmm. absolutely like you have all of these lawyers who, you know, and partners are at law firms, as you know, are this uh, kind of special beast, right? Where you have like, you know, hundreds at some law firms, you know, hundreds of partners and each one is like running their own little company inside mm -hmm. this umbrella organization. Some law firms are, um, much more, um, I guess, heavy-handed um, in terms of like top-down administration and enforcement of of um, standard processes and workflows. Although I would, I would, I would guess that that's more the exception than the rule. Um, whereas some law firms are are more laissez-faire, and you know, they just as long as you know the partners are contributing at, at you know levels that are expected uh, financially, then you know, if it ain't broke, right? Mm -hmm. So um, it's it's really hard for, for, for lawyers to find the time, honestly, and I, I hope that you can appreciate it, to find the time to learn new tools that upend, you know, core workflows that they rely on to provide exemplary client service 
Mm -hmm. right like there's no there's not much room uh for error i mean really there's no room for error <laughs> right when you're dealing with the substantive legal product or the process for that matter right you're dealing often with like bet the company matters right financings that a company needs to survive or grow uh litigation right where if the company loses they're done uh so these are you know super high stakes um issues and uh, to you know for a lawyer to be able to juggle dozens of these at a time uh, they you know they have again they have this muscle memory right they have the process they know it off by heart it's in their heads it's really hard for them to um, you know to to see um, to even take the time to see what efficiencies might be gained mm -hmm. um, now, there are exceptions, of course, and um, and frankly, it just takes time. Um, and there is a certain amount of organic growth that occurs once uh, a legal tech, once you know a technology or a new workflow is introduced. I I, I think that um, you know a, a a point is often raised that well, why should lawyers be more efficient? Because that means they have less billable hours. Mm -hmm. That's total. I mean, from what I've seen that's total bs um lawyers would love to spend less time on any given task period um they but they have to balance um it, it was, so the reason why they would love to do that is that then they can serve more clients right, right. and that's the key right i think for any lawyer um you know the more clients you have the greater potential especially when you're dealing with startups um because you know many startups fail, and you know you want to make sure that you know to the extent you can, you have the startup client that ends up becoming the next you know unicorn, mm -hmm. and so. Um, but you know that that's the same for for you know enterprise clients or any client, because you don't know which client is going to end up being, you know, your marquee client um, or the client that ends up you know providing the most revenue. So you really want to service as many clients as possible you have to do so of course in a white glove fashion especially you know uh, the rates that um that you see um from big law firms um clients um expect 24 7 attention mm -hmm. um seven days a week so um you know learning new tools um even you know participating in uh poc or proof of concepts or trials um, it's really hard for lawyers to fit that in. So, um, you know, they, they really need to be incentivized. Fortunately, uh, there's a trend towards hiring, uh, I guess what we call, and the naming varies, what, what, what we call resource attorneys. Mm -hmm. And um, these resource attorneys are typically, um, you know, lawyers who used to practice and they've decided to, you know, have like an alt legal career, I guess they call it, um, where, you know, they don't have their own clients. They um, don't generally bill their time um, or even track their time. And, you know, they're available for, um, you know, research um, projects. And also, you know, we now look to them for, um, you know, almost as stand-ins for, um, for lawyers to help us determine whether something might be worthwhile to, to test or, or push out. Um, so yeah, that's that's basically 
that's basically why I, you know I again I don't think lawyers are anti-innovation. I just the the both the incentives and the frankly just work life or work innovation balance um, is just really difficult. This year, the IRS will require you to report your crypto activity when filing your tax returns. Crypto-savvy taxpayers are using Node40 to determine the taxes they owe, or losses to claim. Whether you've traded the top five tokens or dove into the new and exciting world of DeFi, Node40 will provide a bulletproof picture of your current tax liability. Exchanges alone can't provide the reports you need. That's why you need a group of crypto tax geeks like the team at Node40 in your corner. With Node40, you won't have to worry about surprises come tax time. Be smart, be prepared, and embrace your crypto lifestyle. My listeners can even take advantage of a bully promo code by signing up today at node40.com slash bully. That's N-O-D-E 40.com slash B-U-L-L-Y. Planning to buy a Tesla with Bitcoin? What if I told you that you could win a Tesla just by trading Bitcoin? Well, now you can with the crypto.com app. Crypto.com is giving away four Teslas. Four. To enter the lucky draw, download the Crypto.com app and buy at least 100 bucks worth of Bitcoin before March 8th. If you're new to Crypto.com, you'll also enjoy 0% credit and debit card fees in your first month. Increase your chances of winning by applying for the Crypto.com Visa card, which gives you up to 8% cash back, along with rebates for your Spotify, Netflix, and Amazon Prime subscriptions. More details can be found in the show notes. Download the Crypto.com app, and good luck. Hey guys, one of our sponsors, Gemini, is launching a new credit card. But it's not a normal credit card where you get rewards back in cash. With this credit card, you get your rewards back in Bitcoin or other available cryptocurrencies. Get paid Bitcoin just for doing your shopping. That's pretty cool. The waitlist is now open, so you can go to Gemini's website and sign up. The earlier you sign up, the higher on the waitlist you'll be when it launches in Q2 of this year. And make sure to check out Gemini's exchange while you're at it. If you open a free account in under three minutes at Gemini.com bully, and you use my ref link, you can get $10 in Bitcoin after you trade $100 or more within 30 days. Once again, that's Gemini.com bully. Thanks. What have you found to be like the most successful approach for getting busy attorneys who bill by the hour and may not want to like take the time to like learn new stuff. Um, have you found a particularly good approach to be like, oh, we have this one product, it's specific to your sort of practice area, we think you'll like it, or is it more like, no, we're sort of rolling this out, we've tested it, it'll be good for you, learn it? Or I, I'm just curious what your sort yeah. of best, best practice is there. Well, so, we often, at least nowadays, we we're often um, coming up with solutions based on uh, the lawyers, and this is often the practice group leaders proactively identifying uh, areas that need, you know, that they they want to improve upon, right? That often comes from either, you know, that often comes from feedback, either from you know paralegals or associates or or clients, client. You'd be surprised, you know, client demand drives a lot of innovation. Um, 
you know, they're the ones that are paying the bills. They're the ones that are, you know, that if they believe that something could be done more efficiently, that they will raise it, right? They're the ones that are reviewing the bills and saying, you know, why, why would this associate bill X number of hours? Um, and so, you know, I think if practice group leaders start to see that effect, um, you know, start to see that, that feedback come in, um, or, you know, associates that have to write off a lot of their time because, um, you know, they're doing something that, again, like the client doesn't, you know, see as something that the associate should be, that an associate should be spending that much time on. Or paralegals, for example, I mean, there are a lot of tasks that people, that lawyers don't like billing for, right? Um, it, it takes up, um, like due diligence, for example. Um, and this sure. is why we've seen a lot of gains in e-discovery technology and due mm -hmm. diligence technology, because it, it is, it is like do conduct doing due diligence, like sucks the life out of you. I, I, <laughs> yeah. One of the last, one of the last projects I worked on, um, at my old firm in Toronto, um, was the Nortel bankruptcy. Oof. Um, and I mean, the, the, the first year associate who took the lead on the due diligence of that. It was his life. It was his life for two years, Ugh. and um, and you know, and these doc, these data rooms, they're you. You would think that companies are really well organized when it comes to their, you know, when it comes to their documents, their contracts, their, um, uh, you know, their their sales materials, and you know, all the other things that you know, financial statements. They're often not at mm -hmm. all, and especially when we were dealing with Nortel. I mean, this was back in two thousand. Eight, 2009, um, we, you know, a lot of these documents were scanned in using crappy scanners. You couldn't OCR it. it anyway, it's just mm -hmm. life sucking. So, you know, when tools like uh, Ebrevia or Kira or Luminance, you know, when these tools started coming out a couple of years ago, um, that was an easy sell, mm -hmm. right? That That's a pretty easy sell. Um, you know, these are tools that leverage machine learning to you know, improve over time their ability to identify certain types of of provisions, contract provisions. Um, now, none of these tools, you can't just rely on these tools 100%, right? Um, because, you know, as you know, ultimately, you know, the partner is responsible for the work product that goes out. And, you mm -hmm. know, I think telling a client, look, we're going to rely on this robot, uh, to do due diligence on your, you know, mega merger or M&A deal. Um, is that cool? Look, it'll save you a ton of money. I, I mean, I don't know any large company that would say, oh yeah, okay, yeah, cool. Just rely on the robots. I mean, and, and I don't think any, any, any lawyer would, would really suggest that. So, you know, we're finding some efficiency gains there. I think in the range of anywhere from like 10 to, to 30%, because ultimately the lawyer still needs to go over the results of you know what the you know what the program found um so so that's one answer to your question is you know there are tasks that are just painful and we don't like to bill for clients don't like to be billed for it um it we burns our people rather, out <laughs> burns people out we'd yeah. much rather spend time you know solving real issues for you know for clients being creative and coming mm -hmm. up with you know doing what humans do right? Come up with creative solutions for difficult problems. That's really what lawyers should be doing. Um, and, and so there are those issues. Um, and, and other times, yeah, there are just, there are uh, lawyers who have a proactive, um, a, a, 
proactive curiosity uh, for tech. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, they'll come to us and they'll say, hey, you know, do you have anything for this? Or if we come across something, you know, those are lawyers we know that we can look to to act as, I guess, you know, business sponsors. Sure. Um, and, you know, we help them come up with a business plan uh, for adopting, you know, the technology and pilot it and all that jazz. Um, so there, you know, there are lawyers who will make time um, and will direct, I think importantly, direct their associates to, you know, and not even direct them, but give them the leeway, right, to participate in, you know, in, in these innovation projects. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, uh, I, you know, after, so, you know, a lot of my listeners might not know this, I'm sure you do, but after 08 and the big sort of crash that happened in the economy, law firms changed sort of fundamentally and so did corporate legal departments, I think. And, you know, these days of massive 20 associate teams doing due diligence for years on big mergers like that are sort of gone now. Um, and a lot of those, a lot of that work has also shifted in-house. Um, mm -hmm. Your point about how clients can be sort of forcing this conversation is interesting and one I haven't thought of, but I suppose it does happen a lot if the client has like a document management system it really likes and they want the firm to use it or, you know, they expect or they have maybe like a fixed fee arrangement that forces yeah. this type of innovation. So you're seeing that sort of pressure from the client side as well. Um, yeah, for, for sure. I think most client RFPs now ask us, you know, what are we doing? How are we innovating to be more efficient? Sure. Right. As a general question, not even matter specific. Um, and so, you know, we, we, we tell them about the document automation projects that we have and, you know, those due diligence tools, et cetera. Um, but, um, yeah, I, um, I, I definitely think that client it, it's more see Cooley doesn't do a lot of like the extremely high volume work for you know huge corporations like um you know like big box chains right mm -hmm. that have tens of thousands of employees if not hundreds of thousands of employees um they will work with their with their law firms to um come up with or demand really <laughs> that their law firms work with them or come up with ways to process legal claims, you know, and I mean like super high volume. Mm -hmm. um, that is, those are areas of course that are not just ripe for innovation that, but that demand it. Sure. Um, I think in our work, yeah, it's more about standardizing documents, you know, reducing the amount of time that it takes to come up with a first draft, right? And that's where the document automation projects come in. And that, frankly, I think is the highest, I think that's the most popular um, innovation, if you will, mm -hmm. that we've deployed at Cooley, um, is the ability for our lawyers to, you know, answer sometimes several dozen questions on a right. web form, uh, you know, like for, for example, we just launched, um, and also on Cooley Go, actually, we have a public version of this now, FYI audience. Um, we just launched the uh, NVCA um, financing documents generator. Mm -hmm. So for your audience's uh, edification, um, the National Venture Capital Association or NVCA uh, for several years now has put out and, and updates regularly um, a standard set of documents um, 
or a set of standard documents uh, to um, to allow a company to uh, raise money from investors. Uh, you would be surprised, perhaps, at how many documents and how much documentation is involved for a company to uh, get investment um, or you know to raise a round. And so uh, they've you know they've put this into a, a fairly standard well they you know into a standardized set, but of course there's tons of variables, hundreds of variables, right? Um, and, and because there's a lot of negotiation that still goes on with the standardized set, but instead of having to you know redline or compare um, your current deal documents with you know the template and then maybe with another deal that you've done in the past of a similar nature um, you know in a similar industry for a similar round etc we now allow the lawyers to go on and you know they can generate a first draft in you know however long it takes them to fill out that web form which is substantially faster mm -hmm. um because cer because certainly you know price demands um are such that um um we you know we want to we need to be as efficient as possible uh when raising these rounds and frankly it mitigates risk too mm -hmm. uh so um and that's that's i think a huge value in a lot of these these tools that i think also leads to greater adoption in law firms is is selling them is selling these tools as a way to mitigate risk right um, a way to mitigate you know missing out on you know a comma or a period or mm -hmm. um you know so, some other um you know potential drafting error which of course we don't do but i'm sure mm -hmm. you know for some people it happens <laughs> but uh, sure you know um the coolie ghost stuff's interesting and i've actually used it before just I heard about it. I went and fiddled around with it. It's very good and it's very cool. And frankly, I was surprised at sort of the the scope at which you guys are just like giving out this information. Did you guys hit substantial pushback internally? Like I could see that conversation and some partners being like, "You want to give all this away? Like why would why would we give it away? Because we could bring these folks in as a client and." You know, bill our time for this. We're, I mean, you said you sort of got coolly go across the line. I'm curious, sort of, what the discussions were about when you were launching it. If that was going to like siphon business away from Cooley. Um, I, I never heard that once. People have been very, very supportive of these public-facing tools. Um, again, lawyers don't like drafting documents. We do not like you know, billing time for drafting documents. We want to be in the business of like, you know, being a consigliere. Um, so, um, you know, I think that CoolieGo docs, again, the documents section of CoolieGo, um, I think is in a, you know, in a way it, it allows us to demonstrate that, look, you're not hiring us to create you know, to like, you know, to use our proprietary, you know, like these are, these agreements are out there, right? Mm -hmm. What, you know, let, yeah, sure. Look, we'll, we'll make it easy for you. Um, you come to us and we will give you advice. You know, maybe you need advice about how to fill in those documents, right? Mm -hmm. That's what it's about. It's not about the documents themselves. It's about ensuring that the, the language of the documents matches your intent and your, you know, specific situation. Of course, 
what we make available is, you know, that's, <laughs> those are not customized for your specific situation and you need to get legal counsel um, to review the documents that are generated, or at least you should. Um, because, it, you know, as you know, legal document, you need to read them and you need to understand right. what you're agreeing to. And sometimes, um, despite our best efforts at, at creating um, contracts that are, um, you know, in plain English, unfortunately, because of decades and centuries of, of common law, um, there are terms of art that mean, that have like special meaning. And these terms of art can be archaic, um, but it, you know it's risky to deviate from archaic language sometimes because you don't know how a court, if it comes down to it, will interpret it. Whereas with the archaic language, you know, you know, you have much greater certainty of how a court will interpret it because there's you know decades and centuries of judgments. Anyway, so that's my spiel on. On, on why, you know, on, on my mm -hmm. pushback when people complain about how archaic language is in contracts, you know, like right. lawyers don't like being, you know, so verbose um, and using archaic language. It's, it's, it, it's an artifact of, of the justice system. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't have an answer for that one. I don't have a, a solution for that. One. But anyway, um, yeah, so, so again, um, we don't care if you have access to these documents, we want you to have access to them. Um, and frankly, you know, if 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 by making them available, they become a de facto standard, great. That means that if you know, if we're on the receiving end of one of these documents, whether from a client that generated it themselves and wants it looked over, or from you know, uh, from um, opposing counsel, um, then great because we're really familiar with it. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, de definitely no no pushback. Um, yeah. And, yeah, fair enough. And I, you know, I suppose to your point earlier, like the NVCA forms are out there and people use those. So, yeah, I mean, you're right. Like that's just sort of the starting place. And maybe it's comparable to like when you buy a house. Yeah, there's sort of standard real estate forms that everyone uses for every deal in your state. But that doesn't mean you're not going to hire a real estate you know, agent to help negotiate the deal points or make sure that you're following the proper processes and procedures. Yeah. I, the lawyer's value is, oh, I think um, a, a key um, aspect of what, of the value that a lawyer brings is um, helping you understand and look out for like what you don't know, you don't know. I know it's like a kind of a cliche term, but, but it, it really matters. Right. I mean, I, I bought a house recently and um and of course, like I use a real estate agent and I mean, this person brought to my attention all sorts of things that I needed to look for that I, I hadn't, I wouldn't have ever thought to look for unless maybe I spent dozens of hours online doing my own research, um, which is why I kind of find it, I kind of find it funny when, um, when like startup founders, um, you know, get all very DIY. Obviously, there are some circumstances where they they have to or they can't. They just couldn't afford legal counsel. But where you know startup founders feel like legal documents are DIY, so DIY, right? Like, why do they need a lawyer? So DIY. Um, but to you know, but to to make sure that you're doing it right, right? Which which as like a CEO of your company, you should 
you know, that's your ultimate responsibility, right? Is ensuring that, you know, your company is, is protected um, and, you know, optimally configured, if you will. Uh, I, I've always found it interesting when founders take a, like a do-it-yourself approach to um, the early, you know, legal um, tasks for their, for their company. I, I, you know, I understand that the need to cut back on or control costs as much as possible is paramount at that stage. I totally understand that. Uh, but, you know, it often requires hours and hours of research to figure out you know, how to incorporate your company and what documents, you know, you need at the outset. Uh, hopefully Cooley Go helps with that. Um, but ultimately, um, I mean, down the road, <laughs> it's way, it, it, it's, it, it's, it's such a value add to have um, proper legal, you know, advice at the formative stages of your company. And often, you know, law firms, if, you know, especially if you're a, a, um, hopefully venture backed or soon to be later to be venture backed company law firms will, you know, do it on a fixed fee or they will, um, even defer the fees until your first fundraise. Um, so, uh, yeah, I guess I just encourage, I encourage founders to, to get proper legal advice because you don't want to be coming up with, you know, to, to a fundraising effort. And, you know, during that due diligence process, the investors discover that you weren't properly incorporated or you have, you didn't authorize enough shares. You don't have an option pool and all these things that will end up just costing you more um, uh, quite sometimes significantly more. Yeah. Um, in, in and slowing end. the deal down too, when you need funding. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Well, yeah, no, that's, that's really interesting. And I agree with that, but it's, it's cool to see you guys just like throwing your docs out there. So props to you guys for that. I, I'm curious about um, if you're seeing any sort of like, you know, you hear smart contracts, right? And that's all the rage, but I don't think smart contracts really lend themselves very well to the actual day-to-day practice of law, at least not yet. But I'm curious to hear as sort of somebody deep in the trenches on sort of the legal innovation side, if you're seeing any um, green shoots on the blockchain technology stuff being adopted by law firms. Um, frankly, uh, there was a lot of, there's a lot of discussion about it, certainly in the, you know, legal tech community, um, about, um, about smart contracts and blockchain. Uh, I think it turned out to be, you know, an educational, um, moment. Uh, I have not seen any real world implementation and frankly not I, I don't even really see it in the pipeline yet um you know not in the next year even um of you know smart contract or blockchain um applications in you know at least in you know i'll call it enterprise legal tech i'm sure that again it comes down to client adoption if we have if our clients start coming to us and let's say you know let's say delaware delaware's blockchain initiative right gets off the ground and and all of a sudden we start seeing companies that are utilizing you know public ledgers or even maybe private ones um to manage a company's you know capitalization table yeah i mean look uh, (laughs) we are there you know we will be 
uh, we will be right there with it. Um, but we are not, you know, proactively, um, you know, proposing solutions to clients, if, if, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So that's, um, I, I'm not sure, that, I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised though, if we were, if we were among the first given, I, I think we have maybe the most startup clients of, uh, I mean, among the most of, of any U.S. law firm, I wouldn't be surprised if we were among the first to, you know, to see a client come in and demand that we use, you know, the, the but, you know, use a, a blockchain based application for, for company affairs. But, I, you know, I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done. Um, it's, you know, in order to allow, for example, paralegals to use like a, a good graphical user interface. Uh, to interact with it. Um, and, you know, will we be drafting and, or at least reviewing smart app, you know, smart contracts? I mean, I would love that. I think that'd be super cool. Um, that's, I hope, I, I mean, I, I, if law schools aren't offering uh, classes in, you know, if that at least touch on smart contracts, uh, I think that's, I think that that's a shame. Um, I, I, I hope that that law schools are at least looking at it if they don't do it already. Yeah, no, and that's what I thought you'd say, <laughs> to be honest. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I think the tech's cool and it's promising, but it's not really ready for game time, at least not at this level. Um, and particularly like we talked about earlier about how, you know, the legal industry may sort of be one of the last industries to kind of take on some of the more innovative technologies. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just the legal industry tends to be a little more conservative and um... well again it comes down to the client demand right. right if we start seeing clients come to us believe me we will respond um it so you know uh, there just isn't really again like I, I don't feel like it's because we're super conservative mm -hmm. i just don't think that like the adoption isn't there yet and i don't think law firms are well positioned to lead adoption in, in in that arena yeah. so one one thing i was looking on your twitter profile before this and uh, your pin tweet says what if i told you the real legal tech job for lawyers in the future isn't coding but tech support <laughs> mm -hmm. and i was like ah, i've had brad has some things to say about that i was just curious to, and maybe that goes back to your sort of time at carta and uh, you know it, some of its hand holding but I, i'm just curious to hear kind of your thoughts on that well, that had the, the smart contract discussion really dovetails well into this. So, if, right now there's um, a groundswell, I would say, um, of support for low-code tools uh, within law firms, right? So, being able to use no-code or low-code tools um, to you know to enable at least my team and the people on my team right I, I don't have professional developers on my team i have people that can use contract express or neota logic um or you know other no code low code tools that we're looking at to come up with essentially applications right like every document generator package I, you know you could call an sure. app let's say um and so, um, you know, we also have another tool that uh, uh, my team is deeply involved with. I'd say we're product managing at this point called Vanilla, which is for our fund formation group. Um, and, um, you know, often, <laughs> I think increasingly in the future, 
um, lawyers are going to be asked like, okay, well, so I'm using this application that you sent me. How do I do X or Y? Mm -hmm. um, what should I fill in? Like, how do I fill this in? Right. It's going to sure. be, it's going to be more about, you know, well, how do I configure or use this application um, rather than, um, you know, substantive legal questions, certainly for, you know, I think junior associates and it depends, you know, maybe if, if you're in a regulatory heavy uh, practice group, um, I would imagine you may be relying on, you know, these sort of bespoke applications more and more. Um, but uh, yeah, that, that was sort of the impetus behind that tweet. Um, it's not so much that people will be, you know, and then frankly, it's not even just supporting the users in that respect, it's yourself debugging your programs that you end up developing, you know, as a lawyer using no code or low code tools. Um, so, which, which I guess isn't really tech support per se, it's, it's, um, you know, I guess it's it, it, some level product engineering, but um, I think that's maybe a bit too fancy of a term for, for that kind of work. Sure. Yeah, no, it's interesting and something I've never really thought about, but I suppose it goes back to your point about the Cooley Go docs. It's like, if a startup founder is calling you, it's not, you're not spending your time, you know, drafting the indemnification provision. You're probably spending your time figuring out what they need their ESOP program or their RSU program to look like for their new employees. So, yeah. And, and, and you know, if you imagine a future of legal practice where, um, you know, where, where lawyers take ownership of custom applications that either they built or someone in their team built using a, a no code or low code tool, um, inevitably, you know, you're going to have, you're going to have UI issues, UX issues, um, substantive, you know, logic issues, and, you know, you're going to have to debug that. So, which isn't, you know, which really isn't altogether different from what they do now with contracts, mm -hmm. right? Um, a lot of an associate's job, I would say, is, <laughs> you know, uh, in essence, coding a contract, except, you know, you're not using Python, you're using you know, word table of contents and cross references and, uh, and other, you know, formatting and, and analytical tools that we offer that are word plugins. So it's, it's sort of a, a almost a natural evolution, um, of that. Yeah, no. And I've heard, I've heard people describe lawyers as like sort of, sort of coders in a way, like the, the, the law is essentially like a programming language to some extent. So there are similarities there, I think. Yeah, code is law. I, I mean, again, that's the whole premise of smart contracts. Um, um, is that uh, certainly statutory law can often, oh, I shouldn't even say often, at times can be boiled down to, um, you know, wow loops and Boolean, you know, true false. Uh, but of course, those there's still a lot of a lot of you know um, subjective qualifiers in the law, which will make certain aspects of of you know the code as law um, movement difficult. Like, how do you code the the concept of reasonable? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. you know, how do you code the concept of best efforts? Um, obviously, anything involving dates and amounts and you know and and objective trigger you know objective events that trigger. I mean, you're right. That's why, like Augur, like that's why a lot of like the the betting, um, 
actually betting to the, the 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 crypto scene in like the the betting world right the prop world that's interesting that's an interesting example because um while you know while a, a contract can be triggered right or the payout in a smart contract can be triggered based on let's say a final score or the score at halftime or how many penalties or whatever it is right based on quantifiable props um that's different than um sometimes you know sometimes there are and if you look on predict it um which isn't crypto but there's often discussion or some debate around when something that was seemingly an objective trigger would actually trigger so like joe biden's going to win the presidential election right well does that happen like when is that january 20th or is that the electoral college vote you know is that when like when does that actually sure. trigger um so obviously you know that that could just be a result of a poorly worded question um but yeah um yeah it's a fair point like yeah, yeah you can it, it's easy to say something is black and white until the shit hits a fan and then everyone <laughs> it, exactly and then welcome to like smart contract common right law. yeah and litigation <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, we're we're out of time. Damn it! I wish we had more because this is really interesting. But um, no, I I don't want to keep you too long, and um, I try to keep these about an hour. So I, I don't know. Before we go, is there any sort of parting thoughts or anything you guys are working on that you want to know? Let my users know or my listeners know about. Um, yeah. I mean, um, again, there there's Cooligo, Cooligo.com. Um, there's, um, a new, a new product that, that we've been working on called Lupul, L-U-P-L, um, for any of you that work at, you know, large companies that, um, uh, work with, you know, outside legal counsel on matters, that's a, um, a, a matter collaboration tool that we've been building out with, um, with other, um, law firms, um, in, in Europe and Asia. Uh, so that's um, that's a pretty cool one, um, and yeah, look, I mean, we have a just keep an eye on Cooley Go. We have a lot of things in the pipeline, um, a lot of articles that you know we're constantly posting. Uh, so you know, we love feedback on that too. Uh, we can't answer substantive legal questions, unfortunately, over email. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess that that would be my pitch. Not until there's a retainer, right, Brad? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And that's don't email me with that stuff. I, I sure. And so not in that game anymore. So if if you want to follow Brad, he's on Twitter too. It's Legal Tech IRL or at Legal Tech IRL, and that'll be in the show notes as well. Brad, cool. I appreciate your time. This has been awesome. Yeah. Thanks, man. Good good thanks. chat. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. New episodes go live every Wednesday, at 7 a.m. Eastern. Links to our Apple and Spotify channels are in the show notes. You can also follow me on Twitter at BullyESQ to continue the conversation. See you next week.